to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, one thing that listeners may not know about us is that we're actually both from Ottawa. Uh, and Very what, proud to be from Ottawa. Yeah, of course. And growing up in Ottawa, at least around the time that I was there, one of the biggest companies in town was a company called Nortel networks. And I don't know if you remember Nortel, but one of the things they did was uh, semiconductor manufacturing. They were in the telecom space. And, you know, during that brief period, it kind of looked like Canada was going to become like a big semiconductor hub. Yes. And anyone who's been keeping up with the news today is probably well aware of the semiconductor showdown that's going on. So it would have been helpful had a Canadian semiconductor company survived to today to give us some skin in the game totally it would have been it would have been great unfortunately nortel did not really survive along with most of ottawa's telecom manufacturing sector it ended up getting yeah it ended up uh getting shut down Um, a lot of those companies were folded into foreign companies and despite employing almost a hundred thousand people at its peak companies like nortel those jobs and a lot of the intellectual property and inventions that they produced ended up in the hands of foreign businesses. So right now, I think you're, you're 100% right. A lot of people are probably looking at that with some regrets, given how important semiconductors have become. Yeah, people are really, really worried about the control of the supply of these little things that basically power everything in our lives. So I understand we're going to dive a little bit into that today, right? Yeah, we have a great guest on who can walk us through what the semiconductor industry and supply chain around the world looks like, and then how Canada might fit into that. Benjamin Bergen is the president at the Council of Canadian Innovators, one of the organizations behind Silicon, which is a new group that's been created to advocate for the Canadian semiconductor industry and try to bring back some of those capabilities to Canada. Benjamin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I think we need to start this off with a very, very basic question. Can you just explain to us what semiconductors are and what they're for? Yeah, so semiconductors are basically in everything now. Um, And they're a critical piece uh, in terms of technology and how really uh, we operate in the world. Think of them as, you know, the steel of the 21st century. They're in everything from cars to industrial material uh, into phones, weapons. I mean, it really is kind of the underpinning of our digital economy um, and are critical um, for really the manufacturing of uh, anything and everything as we're kind of going forward. And, you know, they've been in the news so much lately, but I mean, this is a pretty old technology. Why is it that they're suddenly something that people are treating kind of like a strategic commodity like oil? Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it wasn't really something you were hearing so much about. Um, So that's a great question. So given how critical they are um, in terms of everything from consumer goods to defense, um, they're critical for countries to be able to have access to them. Um, So thinking about, you know, really complex um, supply chain lines which have been created. So, you know, often things can be... um, uh, semiconductors can be designed in you know, different parts of the world, but they end up uh, being manufactured uh, specifically in, uh, in Asia, and, and in particular in two countries, in, in Taiwan um, and in South Korea is kind of where the most advanced chips for things like you know, iPhones are, are, are made. 
And so in the last number of years, um, the geopolitics um, have shifted. Um, and what were once thought of as potentially uh, safe supply chains and access to semiconductors has now been disrupted. And I think kind of two pieces have sort of been at play there. One, I think we've seen things like the pandemic um, cause you know huge disruption in supply chains and realizing that needing um, resiliency uh, and actual capacity domestically matters. Um, so think of that you know around kind of vaccines, masks, that component. The other element is that we're seeing uh, the politics begin to shift in the world and we're seeing uh, the world begin to bifurcate um, and maybe even more than bifurcate, but begin to divide into sort of uh, different sort of blocks. And the concern here is if, um, you know, there was, uh, uh, let's say, uh, um, China to take back Taiwan or, or try and invade Taiwan, that um, access to that uh, chip uh, manufacturing um, would be lost, and that would be you know devastating for uh, other countries, you know, including Canada, including the United States. And so, what's now happened um, has been a real um, expedited effort to begin nearshoring or friendshoring of semiconductor capacity, especially in North America. And so, what's animating this is not only the economic imperative and the value that can be created but also the geopolitics. So it's kind of a perfect storm. And when you get those two things together, things move fast, things move quick, um, and governments are really kind of responsive. And so that's why we're seeing semiconductors really uh, occupy a lot of space, capacity, and time in, uh, in the US, uh, but also increasingly here in Canada. Okay, so I think maybe I want to get into the details of all of those things that you touched on a little bit more, but just to situate the conversation, can you tell us a bit about Silicon and what that initiative is and what you're trying to achieve in this space? Yeah. So, I mean, Silicon is, you know, kind of a sort of classic, um, uh, you know, Margaret Mead quote, right? Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that has. And Silicon really is a group of different organizations in the semiconductor space in Canada that have decided to kind of collectively come together to push for public policy that will lead to outcomes that will help Canada advance uh, in the industry. And this came about from uh, a couple of different angles. So one, um, there is a, a number of different voices that were kind of speaking to government about strategy and thinking uh, in terms of how to advance uh, the ecosystem. And we also heard from government that they were struggling to know and understand which groups to kind of connect and speak with. And so by creating an umbrella organization, which does have different perspectives, right? We are not all 100% aligned on everything. But the idea is how can you begin to build um, an industrial strategy that advances uh, Canadian uh, capacity in, in the uh, industry? And this is what all other successful nations have done in order to build uh, semiconductor capacity. Um, so if you think about something like you know South Korea, they literally have gone from you know rice paddies to the most complex semiconductor uh, building in the world. That's not by chance, right? That's not by just sort of free markets um, just naturally happening. It's by strategic coordination of industry and government working hand in glove. And that's really where Silicon is trying to fill the void, is acting as bringing industry and other um, uh, organizations together to collectively help inform government and, and make decisions with government to help 
um, uh, us as a country get into the semiconductor space in a more aggressive and assertive way. Yeah, well, I mean, are we in the semiconductor space? You know, I've heard of TSMC and uh, Intel. Of course, we're familiar with those, but I'm not really familiar with any Canadian players in the space. So I'm curious, are there any? Have there been any in the past? What's the history there? Yeah, so Canada's history with semiconductors is actually pretty long, and it's a bit varied. Um, so, you know, the uh, IBM uh, Bromont plants in Quebec, you know, it's been around for 50 years. It just celebrated its, its 50th birthday. Um, uh, you know, we've had strengths um, in companies like Nortel, um, you know, a sort of a massive uh, technology company. And candidly, it's a lot of uh, former Nortel employees that have, you know, started up other companies in places like Ottawa and, and, and Southwestern Ontario. Mm. Um, uh, we also have, you know, amazing sort of research and development that's happening at our academic institutions where we've seen, um, kind of a waning in terms of our capacity as a country has really been, uh, from the government in terms of doing coordination. So having, uh, government really take kind of a hands-on approach to building, uh, an industrial policy, uh, and an industrial strategy around semiconductors has kind of been sort of the missing agent. And, and what's really been occurring over the last number of years is you've seen individual companies, um, you know, build interesting things, do uh, amazing work in the space, but then ultimately actually getting acquired by foreign multinationals. So a lot of our semiconductor um, uh, manufacturing capacity is owned by foreign firms. Um, and a lot of the companies that are doing innovative work on, let's say, more the design side or the um, uh uh, chip um, uh, manufacturing component side um, ultimately get uh, acquired or purchased by by foreign tech companies. And so the idea is if you want to actually build wealth and prosperity, you've got to own uh, the uh, IP and data that's being generated uh, from these companies. So, you know, a classic example of something that just recently happened was GAN Systems uh, was purchased by a German company. So it's a semiconductor company that was based in, in the Ottawa region. And you know, that capacity has now, you know, uh, ultimately left Canada uh, and is going to uh, support a German firm uh, and help them, you know, in the semiconductor race that's occurring. Why have Canadian companies struggled to sort of emerge as global players in this space? Like, I mean, take Nortel, for example. I grew up in Ottawa. I remember Nortel was a huge employer uh, for a period when I was growing up, and then it just sort of uh, disappeared. Do you have a point of view on, on why that's why we've struggled to, to build these sort of national champions up? Yeah. So, I mean, to sort of take a step back, um, this isn't just actually indicative of the semiconductor space. This yeah. is actually indicative of, of all Canadian uh, innovation. And... Um, the work that I do at the council uh, as, as president is really about how do we build um, successful technology companies by using government levers to help advance and fuel uh, their success. And um, we really look at four areas. We look at access to capital, access to talent, uh, access to customers and freedom to operate, which is things like international trade agreements, IP, data, standards and regulations, all the super sexy stuff, you know, people, uh, people are wanting us to talk more about. But, um, you know, kind of kidding aside, um, what's essentially happened is the government's had a real hands-off approach in terms of strategically making bets and investments in certain sectors. 
and then struggling with the policy frameworks to help make those successful. Um, so we've done that in semiconductors, but we've also done it in uh, artificial intelligence. So um, the government's AI strategy um, that was implemented, you know, five years ago, candidly has been a failure. Uh, and the reason why it's been a failure is because um, uh, the way that investments were made didn't protect the IP that was being generated out of academic institutions. So, you know, all this really clever um, foundational IP being generated ultimately ends up going to kind of the usual suspects, Microsoft, um, Meta, uh, you know, Cisco, you know, list kind of goes down. And so ultimately what's happened is Canadian taxpayers have been ultimately been subsidizing foreign firms um, and uh, not getting the return on investment uh, that we should be. So my arguments in semiconductors is that government needs to have a coordinated effort thinking about those four buckets, which I mentioned, capital, talent, customers, freedom to operate and center them around how do we help domestic companies in each one of those buckets get where they need to go. Joe Biden has, uh, I guess, talked about how the U.S. might further tighten chip export restrictions. Is that what you would call a hands-on approach? Yeah. So look, um, you know, I think um, two pieces there. One, you know, semiconductors, as mentioned, are definitely a uh, national defense uh, component and their ability to constrict um, semiconductors and um, uh, where they go is uh, part of a, a geopolitical play to compete with China, um, to punish Russia for what's occurring you know, in you know that unjust war right now. Um, and um, that is uh, kind of that sort of element where I would sort of pivot and say the Americans have been even more hands-on is looking at um, what are the rules and regulations and dollars that they can flow towards companies to help for the nearshoring of actual manufacturing. So the billions of dollars that we've seen go into plants in places like Ohio and Arizona, um, that's real uh, tangible uh, government involvement, realizing that there's a strategic need for this. So um, uh, Canada's approach, I don't think can be the Americans. Uh, we're not there in terms of our size and our dollar amount, but where we can be clever uh, and really strategic is how can we play into some of those supply chains? Semiconductors are super complex and different countries have different strengths. Um, you know, the classic example I like to use is the Netherlands. I think that's kind of who we should sort of aim to be in terms of um, success. They have built uh, a company called uh, ASML and it has been um, critical in terms of the actual manufacturing of semiconductors. So much so to the point where the Americans politely had to go to the Netherlands a number of times and say, look, we don't want you selling this technology to the Chinese because it's going to give them an advantage and help them leapfrog in the semiconductor space. So here we have, you know, one of the global superpower hegemons going to the Netherlands and saying, look, guys, we really need you to help us uh, not allow, you know, uh, adversaries to advance in this space. And so I think that's the kind of role Canada should figure out to, how to play is where can we in the supply chains begin to build real strength, real expertise, and leverage that as a tool for um, uh, our economic interest, but also our national security interest as well. As someone who understands very little about the semiconductor supply chain, where do you see those opportunities specifically, I guess, in the manufacturing process? 
Yeah. So if we think about chips, there's kind of three areas. There's the design. So think of that as like the architecture of the chips. Um, there's like the fabrication or the actual making of them. And that's really where places like Taiwan and South Korea have really been um, kind of top of the heap, right? That's, that's where they put their sort of investments and their strategy into being successful. And that's the area where the Americans are, are trying to nearshore all of that capacity building. Um, and then the other area is around packaging. So how do you put these things together and then, you know, kind of help uh, kind of get them out the door and um, use them uh, for, for commercial products or, or other, uh, other needs. And so, you know, the areas where I see Canada um, playing a role is kind of in sort of three buckets, right? There's kind of the current moment of nearshoring and friendshoring that's happening. There's the next kind of two to five years. So how can we um, begin to integrate ourselves more kind of thoughtfully into some supply chains and capacity building? And then there's kind of the long term, which is, I would say, where we're going to get some moonshots, right? So what is the technology that's going to be used 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that's already being created probably, you know, at U of T or at U of W or at, you know, McGill? And how do we make sure that we build capacity to try and own an area of that you know, new future, whether it be quantum or, you know, some other technology that that will be created in the semiconductor space. And so if we kind of think about those three buckets and those three timelines, the areas where I think we've got real capacity is definitely in the design um, space. That is something that doesn't require billions and billions of dollars of money to build actual fabrication plants, um, but you plug into the fabrication plants they're getting built. So I think that's one area. Um, uh, that really Canadians should be aggressively pursuing. Um, you know, maybe at some point there will be, you know, the need for us to build a, a massive, you know, fab plant here in Canada or, or construct something that allows us for that type of capacity building. Is that something I see in the next, you know, couple of years? Probably not. Um, but it is something maybe that we should play out to into the future. The other area where we've got some strength is definitely around kind of the packaging kind of component of, of semiconductors. So there's companies like Renovus that are based in um, in Ottawa um, that recently received some funding from the federal government in a CIF application. You know, they've been really able to capitalize on uh, their expertise in sort of the packaging side of, uh, of chip manufacturing. Um, what I would say, though, is... We as Canadians should be also looking at the supply chain um, from a wealth and prosperity perspective. So, you know, where real dollars are flowing and where real um, money can be made is really kind of in the design components. Um, and so by doubling down on that space, um, not only can we create, um, you know, uh, uh, a desire for us in the supply chain, but also, you know, um, good paying jobs um, in companies that are headquartered here in Canada, they're ultimately gener generating kind of wealth and prosperity for us as Canadians. And we've seen a real decline in our actual GDP per person um, over the last you know, number of, of decades. And so if we want to kind of get back into the productivity game, uh, we've got to figure out where we can actually be winners in some of these new areas in the innovation economy. What are some ideas around how the government could be more helpful in, in terms of adopting a more hands-on approach? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so that's a really, really great question. So for us, we kind of look at it um, through kind of a simple lens, and then maybe I'll kind of explain how that lens sort of applies itself. So in order to have a successful innovation economy, you need to generate uh, intellectual property and data, right? Those are kind of the two big things that really fuel it. And, and there's obviously other things that go along with it. 
But if the government were, be, were to begin to orientate its public policy to the generation of intellectual property um, uh, to Canadian firms, the retention of Canadian IP to Canadian firms, and then the commercialization of Canadian IP from Canadian firms, I think you'd see a really different uh, innovation ecosystem here in the country. Um, and that's what, you know, I've kind of harkened to this a couple of times, all other successful innovation economies do. So that's what the Israelis do. That's what the Nordic countries do. That's what the Germans do, J Japanese, South Koreans. I mean, the list kind of goes on. And in Canada, we don't take that approach. So let's take something like access to capital, right? The government gives, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to Ericsson and Samsung this year to support 5G and other semiconductor capacity building. Those are Sweden, uh, Swedish and Finnish companies. And ultimately, um, the uh, wealth creation that's going to come from that firm is not going to actually stay in Canada. We may get some good jobs out of it, and I'm using uh, kind of air quotes, um, but ultimately in this space, unemployment is actually already at zero. So you're not actually creating any net new jobs. What you are doing is displacing mm -hmm. jobs. And so on this sort of access to capital side, you're not helping a company, a Canadian company generate IP. You're not helping a Canadian company retain IP, and you're not helping a company um, commercialize IP. If you were to support, let's say, a domestic company like a Renovus or a Pariso or a Zynite, I mean, the list kind of goes on. In that instance, if you're funding them, you're helping them generate IP, you're helping them retain IP, and you're helping them commercialize IP. And that's a successful way to do it. Um, if you and then you can think about it from a talent perspective, right? Um, you know, let's take something like the Vector Institute around uh, AI. A lot of the talent that was created there didn't flow to Canadian companies. It flowed to foreign multinationals. And so we funded um, the education of really wonderful AI experts that ultimately went to foreign companies. Um, so companies like Samsung really benefited from uh, what, we, what we as taxpayers you know, put into it. So we're not generating Canadian IP for domestic companies, we're not retaining IP for domestic companies, and we're not commercializing IP. And if you think about that kind of again and again and again through all of the public policy, ultimately what you see is a government that's been a bit chaotic in terms of their investments and a bit chaotic in terms of supporting domestic innovation. So do you have a sense of what's behind the decision-making there? Because money put towards Canadian companies to build Canadian wealth, create Canadian jobs, that sounds pretty good. So why isn't that happening? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things um, that kind of makes sort of Canada sort of unique. Um, and one is definitely our proximity to the Americans. I think that's always kind of been an interesting, um, an interesting piece, especially when you think about um, what the last iteration of the economy was, right? So we've gone from the tangible economy to the intangible. So where real value is created is no longer in like the manufacturing of something. It's in the ownership of the idea and the intellectual property, right? You know, think of Google, right? I mean, they don't actually really make that many things, but their real value is in the IP that they hold. And then all of the legal frameworks that are, that are, that are, that are created to structurally protect them. And so what sort of happened is the economy has shifted in terms of where value and wealth creation happens, but the Canadian government's, policies haven't changed um, and they haven't changed for a couple of reasons um, you know one is we took a very sort of um, neoliberal hands-off approach we just thought 
hey, lower taxes, good roads, everything will be fine. You know, education, a couple of other things as well. Um, but not really sort of viewing industrial policy and strategic uh, planning by governments was critical. So that kind of happened. The other thing that we have in Canada, and this is going to be maybe kind of the more prickly thing that I say, um, but I'm just going to say it, is um, we have real um, capture um, of our uh, public policy inst institutions and a lot of our uh, actual academic institutions. And I'll give you examples of that, right? If you take something like the Business Council of Canada, they allow foreign multinationals to sit within their portfolio. And so when they're doing debates on what policy that they should be supporting the Canadian government, they take into account IBM Canada. They take into account Amazon Canada. They take into account Cisco Canada. And those policies are not actually what's best for domestic innovation capacity building in Canada. It's what's best for those companies. And those companies are not headquartered here. And so ultimately what we see is public policy that actually reflects what the Americans uh, desire or what foreign multinationals desire, not what our own institutions or our own capacity building is required. And why the work that I do was actually created was to be a cantilever to that narrative, to push back against um, some of the other associations that exist in order to create domestic capacity in public policy. And that's the work that we do. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that are kind of dy dynamically sort of playing out right now. But I think people are really beginning to wrap their heads around that you've got to support a domestic company in order to build wealth and prosperity. Um, and if you don't, ultimately what you're competing for is wage arbitrage. Um, and that doesn't actually lead to prosperity. Um, that just leads to, uh, you know, competing against, um, you know, low wage uh, countries for, uh, for labor. I'm curious about the case of ASML in the Netherlands, because it seems, you know, you've drawn the comparison already, and it does seem like an apt one in a number of different ways. Another one being that the Netherlands is just kind of a small country next to Germany, right? Another industrial powerhouse, maybe they're uh, comparable to the Americans in some ways. So did they adopt this approach that you're recommending for Canada in order to build that company? How did that come about? Yeah, so I mean the you know the full arc and kind of history of it, I, I don't have on you know the back of my back of my hand in terms of of knowledge. But what I do know about um, the Netherlands in terms of their innovation policy is they they very much take a hands on approach. So the government definitely looks at areas where they've got winners and then they support them and they support the hell out of them uh, and really use kind of all the tools of the state to make them successful. Um, and that's, you know, sort of what's happened with uh, ASML is the government has really backed them and backed them for, you know, they've been around for decades um, and continue to champion them. And, you know, that is some of the work that probably Canada should have done around a company like Nortel, right, is what are all the tools and the levers that you can do to support your firm's uh, ability to be successful? Um, and I don't think Canada has done that. Um, I don't think we have had really kind of the hands-on approach and using all of our industrial tools um, to strengthen and protect companies. So correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of what we're getting at here is that to invest in domestic companies, it almost requires a bit of like a risk, a bit of a step back and say, you know what, there might be this other 
company coming from the U.S. that's a bit more built up that could offer a bit more value in the short term, but instead we're going to put more money in this other company that might not be you know, as mature, but we're just going to do that for the strength of the domestic economy. So, you know, money is kind of one component, I would say, right? Um, and then there's all these other kind of policy levers that we can kind of get into. Money is kind of the easy one. Like it's the one that you can kind of just kind of put of up course. Kind of quick, quickly. But, you know, what I would say is what we're trying to articulate um, is that, you um, in something like Silicon, we've got to figure out where are our strengths as a country? Um, where do we actually have real capacity? Because that's the other thing is the government's done very little mapping to actually determine where we have strength in different uh, sectors of, of semiconductors. And so, you know, if if it's kind of a head-to-head -head battle, um, Sarah, in terms of kind of what you're arguing, you know, question mark on whether or not that's actually the right strategy. I think the right mm -hmm. strategy is how can government use its tools and its levers to help support domestic companies where we've got some opportunities to be successful. Um, where we see the government currently playing is not actually being supportive of domestic companies. They've actually been supportive of foreign firms. And so our argument is let's at least kind of level level the playing field in terms of who and how we're supporting uh, domestic companies. You know, um, the Council of Canadian Innovators isn't for, you know, autarky or shutting down the border. Um, but our argument really is how do you support domestic companies uh, fully in order to be competitive. And I think if you do that, the way that other countries go about supporting their firms, um, you'll see a lot more successful outcomes. There are risks, there will be failures, right? I mean, you know, innovation is one of those things where, um, you know, uh, things can be leapfrogged and, and, and losses will occur. Um, but you've got to take some, take some risks in order, in order to win some bets. And, you know, the government is already doing that candidly. They're already spending hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, shred and IRAP and other other areas. The question is now, are you actually properly coordinating them through a public policy framework that will actually lead to the outcomes that you want? I can imagine people hearing this and saying, you know, we are so far behind in this space, it seems like the Americans are already putting so much money into this. I mean, there's built up industries in South Korea and Taiwan, like you talked about already. Is there really any point at this stage in even getting into the semiconductor game, especially when we do have the Americans right on our border? It's going to be a safe supply. I mean, strategically, what's the what's the response to that? Yeah, I mean, um, so the great thing about you know innovation and technology is that you know it's transformative and new, new stuff kind of comes around all the time, right? You know, uh, Canada's got you know real capacity in areas like you know quantum computing, right? Um, we had real expertise in artificial intelligence and we're actually leaders in it. Where we stunk up the joint was that we didn't know how to commercialize it, right? So when we think about folks like Jeffrey Hinton and Yashio Bengio, right, two of the top minds in AI. You know, we've, we haven't generated any of the companies, right? So we've been we've been funding it, but we haven't we haven't haven't actually benefited. And I think semiconductors is kind of similar um, to the side where we've got some real great companies that are doing really interesting work and researchers. Um, but how are we going to commercialize and kind of make value out of it? So if we're already doing it, you know, in terms of the funding component, m my thinking is why not actually have a strategy in terms of how we can extract wealth? On your comment about the Americans, I don't know is is that a true statement, right? We saw what happened Fair. during um, or during COVID, right? You know, we had a president in the White House that was a monster, and you know there were masks that were supposed to be heading towards Canada um, because we didn't have domestic capacity to build them, 
and they were potentially going to be um, redirected back to Americans. And look, we're maybe one election away from a monster returning again to the White House. And so what I would say is um, we cannot bet on other people for our own protection and our own security and our own economic prosperity. We as Canadians have to do it ourselves and we have to figure out how to be smart and successful in this global game. And I think the thinking that relying on Americans and their capacity is um, a big mistake. And I actually think candidly, it's kind of, uh, and Taylor, I know you didn't mean to do this way. I actually think it's kind of insulting. It's as if we, we're not, you know, adult enough to actually, you know, you know, sort of stand up on our own kind of capacity and our own ability as Canadians. And so what I would say is, no, we can't own the entire semiconductor space. That's not the argument Silicon is trying to make. What we're trying to say is where are the couple of areas where we can be as influential as a small country like the Netherlands in terms of the supply chains, making sure that, yeah, if the Americans do try and shut us off because there's been Trump reelected, we can turn around and say, look, we've got, you know, critical minerals and we also got the, the capacity around, you know, X in order to kind of protect ourselves. So I think that's the other element that we've got to think about is that um, the world is changing. The world is um, going through uh, traumatic uh, kind of shifts um, and making sure that we as Canadians have the ability to plug into something that is integral, not only to us as kind of consumers and to the things that we use every day, but also the things that will protect us um, uh, that, you know, sadly, semiconductors are in weapons, right? Um, so that's the other kind of element here that, that we've got to kind of think about. This might be a good time to pivot for a moment to the differences between these super high tech semiconductors that we've been hearing a lot about, because we've been talking a bit um, using semiconductors as this term that kind of captures the whole industry, but we have kind of these normal semiconductors and then these very high-tech ones, which is what a company like Taiwan's uh, TSMC creates. What's the difference between the two and why is there so much focus on the latter these days? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely the um, the uh, high-capacity semiconductors and, and more complex ones really are kind of what's fueling um, the advancements in things like AI. So having the ability to underpin uh, technology advancements is kind of critical. So, um, you know, things that are powering, you know, you know, the, mo the most recent version of your iPhone, right? That's leading to kind of the consumer fueling of things, but then also um, some of the more critical components uh, like, you know, quantum computing, AI. And so whoever has the ability to uh, build enough of these chips um, and, uh, and technology to advance what that next um, step um, in the semiconductor space uh, will be, will have an advantage not only in semiconductors, but in also all of the other areas that are kind of connected to it that are uh, advancements. So it's a little bit like um, uh, kind of owning the railroad, you know, uh, in, 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 in that period of time. Mm -hmm. and, and then the ability to everything that sort of plugs onto it, um, whether it be, you know, AI, you know, which is maybe wheat from the prairies or lumber from, you know, northern Ontario or, you know, that type of thing. So semiconductors is, is really that kind of foundational component, which all of our sort of digital economy is built on and having the most advanced allows you to advance those other areas as well uh, at a faster at a faster rate. It seems like there's a few areas uh, where there's a growing case being made for a more focused and robust industrial policy, semiconductors being one of them. Uh, you know, last week we talked to someone from biotech who was making 
similar arguments, obviously EVs, batteries, these sorts of things. Um, do you see these as uh, a choice between spaces that we should focus on? I mean, obviously we're resource constrained, uh, so we can't do everything. Is semiconductors where we should be focusing? Is that a, should be the top priority, or should this be one of a number of areas? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time in a few a few specific areas, right? So, um, uh, you know, what all of those are, um, uh, you know, um, I think you know, we as Canadians and and uh, as you know, business leaders need to help you know help shape and kind of create. I think where we should lean heavily is where we've got. Um, uh, natural um, and um, winning uh, companies that are already doing interesting work. So, how do we support our winners, um, and and how do we help you know sort of um, figure out where emerging technology is? I think semiconductors is one of those critical spaces where it is such an underpinning of the of the future um, and of our current economy that that not playing it is actually you know a big risk, and I think actually puts in question. Uh, some of the other kind of key areas where we should have strategies, whether it be, you know, AI, you know, even, uh, you know, biomanufacturing, um, you know, a lot of that is moving towards uh, requiring AI technology and the ability to use semiconductors to generate that uh, capacity is required. So I think it's foundational. Um, I think it's critical. And I think we need to have our own domestic capacity um, that allows us to be successful. Okay, last question for me, because I know we're running towards the end of our time here. But Perhaps this is a little unfair because I know you have a bucket of asks, but what is the the, sort of the one most important thing that you would want to see from policymakers on this? Yeah. So this is going to be the least sexy answer um, that I give you and probably the most like benign is just meet with uh, innovators and leaders in this space regularly and often and form a real working group um, that pulls in all the different levers of the federal government. One of the things that was a little bit shocking to me was in February, um, we brought um, 15 semiconductor companies to Ottawa to meet with civil servants and the political class. Uh, And we had one meeting where we brought different departments. So foreign affairs, we brought folks from ICED or Industry Canada, we brought folks from natural resources, and all of them work on semiconductors. All of them kind of work in it in their sort of like little spaces, you know, the geopolitics of it from foreign affairs, the industrial policy from from the federal government or from the federal government through ICED. And none of them had actually spoken with each other or had not spoken with each other in a really long period of time. And so here we have a government um, that is so siloed that it doesn't understand how um, foreign policy is connected to industrial policy and industrial policy is connected to the environment and the environment is connected to natural resources. And so the one sort of big urging that we've got really with the federal government is how do you bring kind of all of the expertise that government has in those different silos collectively with what you've got from, let's call, you know, industry, but also, you know, civil society, whether that be, you know, universities, academics, you know, civil liberty groups, other other organizations. And how do you collectively bring them together to build a strategy um, that really is about maximizing uh, our potential as as a country. And that really is kind of, I would say, the big ask. It's not, you know, invest in this or, you know, X policy Y, because the way that innovation policy works is it's iterative, right? It's not something that you kind of just do once and then it's done. It's something that you've got to kind of do day in and day out because things are shifting and changing so quickly, not just from a geopolitical perspective, but also from what technology is successful and which technology is not. 
So um, having a regular cadence of engagement that's deep and meaningful is kind of the big the big ask in all of this. And it's not um, it's not actually that hard, um, but it does require uh, organizing and an organizing principle that I think Ottawa uh, and uh, you know other governments in this country have kind of forgotten about. Okay, well, Benjamin, thank you very much for joining us. That was great. Very interesting. Thank, thank you so much for having me. So that was a fascinating conversation with Benjamin offering up some new perspectives around the semiconductor industry and Canada's role or could be role within it. But what I find super interesting is that I think we continue to hear that the strength of any country's industries are super reliant on governments taking a chance to support and even sometimes prop up these homegrown players, like some of the examples that we talked about in Europe. And it's a shame that Nortel didn't survive to kind of make it into the news cycle today because we're kind of still here talking about how it's a company that really could have given us an edge when it comes to kind of being part of the semiconductor supply chain. And now we're kind of starting from scratch. What do you think, Taylor? Well, yeah, I think I agree with what you just said. One of the things that I'm taking away from these conversations is, you know, no matter what policy governments adopt, they are, uh, they do have an industrial policy, whether they call it that or not. And for a long time, it seems like our industrial policy was just to let whatever happens, happens and let the chips fall where they may. And one of the consequences of that is that we lost companies like Nortel. And now when semiconductors are more important than they've ever been, we don't have those sort of national companies where we can attract that talent, control that intellectual property. You know, there's all sorts of good reasons that Benjamin outlined why you want to be a part of that global supply chain for uh, such a, an essential part of the economy and of modern technology. And we're kind of starting from square one again, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and obviously these decisions are complicated when it comes to whether you fund or whether you don't and how much, you know, any company in any industry. But it yeah. makes me think twice, especially around the path that we're taking right now to support foreign companies specifically in the emerging EV battery space. And mm. as Benjamin pointed out, you know, foreign companies, when they come in, the wealth that they accumulate, that they acquire, kind of gets sent back to headquarters in, you know, a foreign country. And so it seems like we have an opportunity to get it right with kind of yet another industry, but we're kind of, you know, paving the way and incentivizing to the tune of billions of dollars, right, foreign players to actually, you know, come in and set up an industry that we similarly might not see the full benefits of as Canadians. For sure. It does raise questions about that. And I thought the example of ASML in the Netherlands was a really good one because, you know, the Netherlands is not a big country and yet they've managed to carve out this niche for themselves where they are one of the most important players in one of the most important supply chains in the world. And they've kept that company in the Netherlands. And that's, I think, super valuable and something that we should probably look at how we can emulate. You know, I think some of the comments that Benjamin made about where we could fit into the supply chain are are also interesting. Like maybe we don't need to build 
the sort of fabrication plants that they have in Taiwan or that they're building in the States right now, maybe we can fit in somewhere that is is more niche, more uh, suited to our advantages, but still important. Yeah. And the fact that we're even having this conversation means that there's an opportunity to kind of participate in a more meaningful way. So maybe there's maybe there's hope. But in any case, this all feels very serious when talking about semiconductors specifically, right? We're not just talking about a technology that's nice to have because it goes into our MacBooks and iPhones, but it's a technology that countries have indicated that they're willing to literally fight over. And so all eyes are going to be on the space for the next little bit. And I'm sure we'll have some conversations as all of the news in this quote chip war continues to develop. For sure. Well, is that a good place to leave it for now? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And also subscribe to our daily Canadian business newsletter. You can find that at www.readthepeak.com. Thanks to our guest, Benjamin Bergen, and we will see you next week.